Second Samuel chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal-perazim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly, for then the Lord will come out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so, as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our prayer that we would learn to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We love you, we bless you, and it is our glory to study your scriptures and to worship you through them. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a story that's circulating in pastoral circles, as well as in some of the Christian books that I own, about Ivan the Terrible, the Tsar of Russia, Now, I'm convinced it's an urban legend for three reasons, which we won't get into, but uh, the story goes that Ivan wanted to marry the daughter of the king of Greece, and the king of Greece was okay with it, but he said, you can marry my daughter on one condition, and that is that you become a member of the Greek Orthodox Church. Now, I smell a rat right there because Ivan was already a member of the Orthodox Church, but in any case, the, the story says... Ivan was quite okay with that, uh, and he got 500 of his soldiers uh, talked into becoming Greek Orthodox as well. They quickly got catechized, and everything was going along swimmingly well until the patriarch said, no, wait a shake, you're having professional soldiers uh, get baptized? No, you can't do that. They've got to quit their profession. You can't have professional soldiers in the Greek Orthodox Church. And uh, that kind of made everything uh, come to a screeching halt because there's no way that Ivan's going to make his professional soldiers give up their, 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 their job. And uh, so they're, they're waiting, they're thinking, they're debating. And finally, Ivan the Terrible comes up with a brilliant plan. He says, okay, you guys believe in baptism by immersion. We'll immerse our soldiers, but allow them to stick one hand and their sword out of the water. That way they can become members of the Greek Orthodox Church, but their unbaptized arm and sword allows them to continue to be professionals. Now, I think it's obviously a fabricated story. I'm surprised so many books have picked it up as truth. But I think it's a great illustration of a problem that we do indeed have in Christian circles And that is that many times there are areas of our lives that we do not want to submit to the Lordship of Christ. There are many areas of our lives where we do not want to Christianize 
or put under the water, as it were. Now, the books of and the articles that I own that have applied this story have almost universally applied it to money, and uh, there have been various titles like the unbaptized wallet or, or something to that effect. And I found it rather curious that none of the books have applied it to military service, which to me seems the most obvious application you could make from the, the story. Uh, David was quite willing to baptize his sword, so to speak, and to serve God with his sword. Now, the reason I bring this up is that there are segments of the 21st century church that are pacifist, and they believe it's sinful to be involved in any kind of self-defense or resistance uh, to, to evil or to uh, be involved in the, in the military. And even though I'm going to be applying this passage to spiritual warfare and to other areas of life, if I was teaching a bunch of soldiers, I'd have no problem applying this passage uh, to dedication and warfare, that you need to be the best soldier that you could possibly be. You cannot read through the life of David without realizing that he served God with his sword and he pleased God with his sword. And you can't just chalk it up to, oh, well, that's the Old Testament. You know, we can ignore it because Romans 13 does exactly the same thing. Romans 13 verse 2 says it is lawful for the civil government to exercise judgment with the sword. Verse 3 makes it clear that it is lawful for civil rulers to terrify crooks with the sword. Verse 4 says that civil officers should use the sword as a ministry to God in executing evildoers. I don't think you could give a more explicit reference to what we're talking about here. Uh, they're saying it's supposed to be a ministry to God. They're supposed to baptize their swords and use them in the service of Christ rather than resigning from the military or resigning from public office and saying, okay, I'm no longer going to use the, the sword. Now, they're supposed to be baptizing the sword and, and only using it for lawful, biblically lawful use. But in Romans 13, verse 5, it says they can be instruments of God's wrath. Verse 6 says it's okay to pay taxes to fund such warfare and such law enforcement. Jesus did not make soldiers leave the military. Instead, he instructed them on how they could serve him in the military. And the same could be said of John the Baptist's treatment of soldiers and, and Peter's and Paul's as well. In fact, uh, based on some other things that I've read by him, I'm pretty sure I know how Stonewall Jackson would preach on this or teach on this passage if he discussed it at the Virginia Military Institute. If those soldiers of the Tsar really existed, they should have been allowed to baptize their swords and to employ their giftings to the glory of Christ. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to give you a dozen adjectives which can be used both for civil military as well as for spiritual warfare. But uh, these are wonderful adjectives for warriors. I think we can apply them to women and children as well. There's uh, applications we'll be making, but they're wonderful adjectives for warriors. And the first one is wary. <clears throat> if there's one thing that you find in First and Second Samuel on the life of David is that he was aware of what was happening around him. He was very wary of possible danger. Verse 17 
says, Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. He was not caught by surprise because he was wary. And I think this verse speaks to the balance that needs to be maintained in our country's military intelligence and involvement in other countries. There always needs to be preparedness and wariness concerning aggressor nations. And on this, I disagree with at least some uh, libertarians. Uh, David did not relax after the major victory against the Jebusites because he knew, I mean, there's going to be dangers from other aggressor countries as well. He was always anticipating potential problems, and he was always gathering intelligence. But here comes the balance. He always understood who the true enemies were, and they were not his citizens. It was not until chapter 24 that Satan moved David's heart to begin to gather intelligence on his own citizens, his own people, and as minimal as that intelligence gathering was, it was an offense to Joab, it was an offense to God, and it brought down God's judgment. So when we get to chapter 24 in the future, we'll have a lot to say about the overreach of the Census Bureau and the FBI and other agencies. I think it's a great passage dealing with the limitations on federal government. But this little verse all by itself shows that there should be a difference between wariness and paranoia about everyone. I have no problem with the massive amounts of intelligence that we gather on China and Russia and Iran and other potentially dangerous uh, countries. I have no problem with declaring Islam to be a threat. I think we should. Unfortunately, we've not been wary in the right directions. We allow Muslims to immigrate here even when they have radical ties, and there is much evidence of this. The real threat from Iran is not what they can shoot at us, at least not right now. I think there is some dangers in the future on that. But the real threat that they pose comes through our immigration policies. Okay? And so while we give every appearance of being wary in other nations, we're letting the Philistines stream into our country in many forms unchecked. For example, dozens of countries have spies in our countries uh, via in our country via the diplomatic immunity that we give to United Nations officials. I mean, it's crazy. The United Nations itself is a huge breach in America's security, and it always has been. And so a nation's wariness can take good directions, like it does in this chapter, or it can take bad directions, like it does in chapter 24. But we can apply this to spiritual warfare as well. Too many Christians spend no time trying to understand the worst enemy that we could have, and that is Satan and the incredible numbers of demons that are under his authority. It doesn't even enter the consciousness of many Christians that Satan is attacking us on a daily basis. Too many times uh, we treat our spouse as if they are the enemy, when in reality it is Satan who is trying to tear apart uh, our families. Or we might fight against our flesh, but fail to understand that it's demons who are constantly using our flesh to tempt us. Okay? Wariness is a critical component of a well-governed individual, family, church, <coughs> and nation. So don't be naive. 
about the dangers that our own government <clears throat> is posing economically and in other ways. Be wary. <clears throat> the next word is adaptable. Where was David when the Philistines came looking for him, seeking to capture him? <clears throat> Commentators point out, previous verses indicate quite clearly, he was in Jerusalem. Now, that would have been a pretty safe place for David to stay if he was only concerned about not getting captured, if he was only concerned about his own safety, because you think about it, the Jebusites had safely been able to be there, surrounded completely by enemies for hundreds of years. Nobody has been able to take uh, over that city. But David wasn't simply after personal security, and so he stayed in that city. Verse 17 says, And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now, the operative words are went down, which commentators say makes it impossible for the stronghold to be anywhere in Jerusalem. Uh, this was the stronghold that David was familiar with in the desert that's been mentioned over and over uh, earlier in First and Second Samuel. And uh, this stronghold that he was familiar with uh, enabled him to adapt uh, uh, to many more contingencies than he would have been able to do if he had stayed in Jerusalem. This move enabled David to pick when and where he would engage the enemy, and with the flexible options that had opened up, it enabled David to adapt as the need arose. Now, more importantly, David was concerned with protecting all of Israel, not just protecting his own hide. He refused to let the Philistines box him in. Now, I think the military wisdom is obvious, but it's a principle that applies to all of life. Too many times we box ourselves into one option. When churches take on huge debt, it suddenly becomes impossible for them to become flexible. Uh, for sure, they could not go underground because they're accountable to pay their debt to the bank. And they are now restricted to uh, this one uh, building that they, that they own. We have the flexibility of going underground within a week if we needed to. And having grown up in Ethiopia, having spent time in China and India, I'm very, very sensitive and conscious to the, to the fact that that kind of a necessity could easily, easily arise in our own country. When the communists took over in Ethiopia, they started closing down the churches, and the churches that were building-based disappeared almost overnight. Uh, they, they ceased to exist, whereas those that really were overseen on a regular basis uh, by elders in groups of ten, uh, those not only survived, they grew. They grew like crazy. Now, they weren't able to meet as a, as a whole in a public arena, but they were able to prosper. They were able to, to, to grow. They were instantly adaptable. Flexibility and adaptability is so important in business, family, church, and nation. Uh, businesses that box themselves into only one option are going to have a much tougher time if the economy goes south unless their one option capitalizes on the economy going south. But there are many applications we could make on this one point. Okay, third adjective is informed. Verse 18 says, The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord. Now the so indicates 
that uh, David was informed of the new developments, and I've already touched on this uh, a bit under the wary point. Uh, Point one dealt with the balance we need to have between wariness and paranoia, but this just addresses the need to constantly be informed. Uh, It implies a good chain of communication from soldier to uh, commander-in-chief, and the application of the military is so obvious I'm not going to touch on it further. But why? Why is it that Christians are not equally informed in other areas of their life, other dangers that they face? Or to press this to your own hearts, have you studied the dangers that could threaten your family in the next few years, and have you studied them sufficiently that you know exactly what options you have before you? You still need to go to the Lord for guidance, as the next point suggests. But just as one example... With Obamacare looming over our heads, have you at least investigated how it will impact your family and what your options are? Have you informed yourself of other Philistine-like dangers that are pursuing you, dangers like potentially massive price increases of electricity and food and other items in the next uh, few years? Actually, Bill's already told us it's just about guaranteed that your electricity bill is going to be going up significantly as a result of all the unconstitutional EPA uh, regulations. So have you thought about that? Could your budget sustain a significant increase? And if it can't, what are the other options that you have uh, before you? We need to be thinking about the future. Are you aware of what both government and private research is saying about potential terrorist attacks within the USA? Now, some libertarians take a who-cares attitude uh, toward that, but I think it is a real threat. I think there is abundant evidence that we could have huge terrorist attacks uh, within America. And what are the resulting dangers of riots and shortages uh, if an economic collapse happens? Or to use a different application, are you informed about the strategies that Satan uses to try to undo families and churches and, and, and to get involved in our lives. You know, when Paul was writing to the Corinthians in, uh, what is it, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. Could that be said of you? Do you know what his strategies are that uh, he tends to use against you? Be informed. The next adjective is prayerful. David sought God's guidance in verse 19. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. Now David already knew the biblical options, but he wanted to know which biblical options would work the best in this particular situation. And the Lord gave him that guidance. And some Reformed people have failed to understand this point on guidance. They say, you don't really need to pray for guidance. Just read the Bible and do what it says. And if it gives you two or three different options, do whatever you you want to do. In fact, I've got a big book on guidance. That's basically, you could sum it up in, in those words right there. And if that was as far as it went, you know, it wouldn't be so bad. But it went on to say that you shouldn't pray for guidance. It's that shouldn't that troubles me. I think it's short-sighted, but more importantly, I think it's legalistic. This is saying, uh, if you take that approach, it's basically saying that all you need is knowledge 
and understanding, but you don't need wisdom. Okay, all it's saying is you need, all you need is knowledge of the data that's contained in the Bible and understanding of how it fits together in a practical way, a systematics of that data, but you don't need the wisdom of knowing how to apply that in the unique, specific situations that you are facing. Really, that, that's, that's what, it, uh, what it amounts to. Uh, just to use courtship as an example, in our co- uh, conference on courtship, we saw that the Bible gives a great deal of flexibility on how to get married. We looked at seven different models, some of which aren't too cool, uh, courtship and betrothal being the best uh, of the models, and yet there are liberties there. So you have freedom within boundaries. The boundaries would be the laws of God that uh, apply in every culture, in every age, uh, we, we follow God's laws related to, to romance. So there's freedom within law. Now, if you use the clear place of freedom as an excuse to disobey God's laws, you end up destroying freedom. You should never pray for guidance as to whether you really need to follow a biblical law with regard to romance or not. No, it's a law. Obviously, he's given infallible guidance right there. In fact, it's the only uh, infallible guidance that we have is God's Word. But on the options of liberty within the law, a parent might need to ask God for wisdom on how to proceed with his child's unique um, personalities and unique situation. And the son and daughter are certainly going to be praying for wisdom. I had one Reformed person actually tell me, I don't need to, to pray about that. If there were two girls who were equally qualified biblically, and I like them both, and they both like me, I just flip a coin and marry one of them. And I think, wow, that's a little bit of a cavalier attitude toward uh, marriage. And if we ought not to take such a cavalier attitude toward marriage, we probably should not with regard to other important things as well. Now, in the case of David, the Bible allowed a wide latitude of liberty. It allowed for frontal attacks, guerrilla warfare, hit-and-run tactics, ruses, flight, many, many other options. It gave liberty, okay? David could do what he wanted. But that misses the point that David wants guidance for which tactic is going to be successful in this particular battle, right? He wants to be successful. And this time, God guided him to engage the Philistines in a frontal attack. In verse 23, God told him, hey, don't do a frontal attack this time. I want you to go around through the rear and wait, wait for my signal. And both were biblical strategies, but when we speak of God's guidance, we're not talking about guidance on ethical boundaries. That's given in the Word. You don't need to go anywhere beyond the Word of God. Totally agreed on that principle. We're talking about asking God for wisdom and using the biblical axioms and options in real life. And every single day, there are options before us that we have the privilege of asking God for guidance on. Now, I don't want to dig too deep on this, but because some of you have been troubled with this, I do want to at least make one more observation that maybe will help to clarify. James 1 says that Christians sometimes lack wisdom on what they should do. What's his advice? You may be shocked by this. James's advice for getting wisdom is not to go read the Bible. He already assumes you've read the Bible and you've got all the data that the Bible contains. What's his advice? 
his advice is to ask God for wisdom, to ask him for guidance on how to apply the data from the Bible that you've already gotten. James 1 verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. And then he goes on to say, if you don't ask in faith, you won't get the, the wisdom. So one of the laws that Scripture gives is to pray for wisdom, to pray for guidance. And while there are many times when it really doesn't matter what you do, for example, you could flip a coin if you wanted as to whether you're going to eat cornflakes or oatmeal tomorrow morning or just do whichever feels better, okay? And on many issues of life, that's perfectly okay because we're not talking about sin, right? We're talking about, uh, we're talking about guidance on what would be uh, the most successful a thing that we would, uh, that, that, that we would uh, face. Within biblical freedoms, you do what you want. But there are times when the stakes are so high, you want the biblical option that will be the most prosperous. And actually, I guess I could backtrack on that. Even on that breakfast illustration, let's say you've got horrible allergies, you might experiment and say, Lord, give me some wisdom. I'm going to experiment with the foods that I eat. Maybe I've got a food allergy. Or why do I have allergies? I mean, so even there, you could be asking for, uh, for wisdom from the Lord to discern what in the world is going, going on. Uh, so anyway, I know I've hammered on this, but I've done so because some of you have struggled on the relationship between the sufficiency of Scripture, which we absolutely believe, and prayers for guidance. And there really should not be any tension whatsoever between the two. Outside the Bible, you have the freedom morally to do whatever you want to do. Okay, whatever you want to do. And as far as I'm concerned, it's a relationship between the knowledge and the understanding that you get from Scripture and asking God, okay, Lord, I know I've got liberty to make two or three, four different choices here, but which one would, would you believe helps me to prosper the most? I think it really amounts to that. So it should not be a tension in your mind. Now, the next word, I think, is a key one. Be decisive. David took immediate, decisive action based on God's guidance. He knew he wasn't violating any biblical principles, and he knew now what God's guidance was. It resulted in boldness of action. Verse 20 begins, So David went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. What gets some Christians into trouble is a failure to take actions that need to be taken immediately. They get themselves into trouble through overanalyzing or procrastination or laziness or fear. Uh, some people can't make uh, snap decisions because they always feel that they need more information before they can make their decisions and so they analyze and strategize and chart things to death and they never get anything done, okay? We are limited creatures, and we have to make decisions with limited information. It's just a fact of life, and we need to get over it, not fret about it, not sweat over it. And that'll mean sometimes you're going to make decisions that in hindsight will look like a mistake. Uh, it was like the worst decision you could have made. In fact, my father-in-law, he, he used to... Um, uh, mention this when we would make a decision that uh, whether it was on stocks or something else that we were regretting and thinking ah oh, man that was a bad decision I wish I had sold uh, uh, or maybe bought more of those stocks when I did or whatever and his response was well 
if right now you only had the information that you had back then when you made that decision, would you make the same decision? And I say, yeah. And he said, well, don't worry about it then, okay? That's just part of our creaturehood is that we have to make decisions based on very limited uh, information. And we just trust God that he's, even the, the, the things that are not the greatest decisions, they're a part of his guidance. They're a part of him directing us in our paths. So decisions can't be postponed forever simply because we don't know everything. And by the way, if you want to protect your children from such indecision, it's usually character issues that lead to indecision. And there are character issues that you can be instilling in your children at a very young age. For example, without a work ethic, Proverbs tells us that opportunities will be missed and repairs will not be made. And so sometimes a lack of a work ethic is what results in the indecision. Or another example, without future orientation, people will tend to do what comes easiest, which is not usually the best decision. Uh, Or as another example, without boldness, people will make business decisions too late or will jump on opportunities too late. And those are just three character issues that lead to decisiveness. But we have got to instill decisiveness uh, into our children. It's critical. Personally, I think it's better to make a bad decision and be decisive than never to be able to make decisions because you're so indecisive. Much better to be decisive and occasionally make uh, bad decisions. Okay, the next adjective is humble. And this is a wonderful balance to the decisive feature. Some people are decisive and can't ever admit they made wrong mistakes. This is a great balance. And uh, verse 20, David gives God credit for his victory. So David went to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal Perazim. Now it was David who battled. I'm sure he had a tough day. He was sweating, bloody, and uh, there was a lot of work that was invested. But God battled through him. And this is a balance that many times people have a hard time processing through. I talked to a Christian at my Bible school one time, and uh, he struggled with this. He asked me, why should I pray Why should I pray for God to help me on my exams when I'm the one who was studying? Why should I thank God for good grades when it is I who did all the work? Now, he had done very, very well on a previous exam, and so I asked him if he had memorized every detail in the textbook, and he said, well, no, obviously not. That's impossible. And so I asked him this. What if every question on the exam had been on precisely the points of information that you hadn't studied for? Can't you be thankful that God allowed you to master the portions that were covered on the exam? Secondly, Scripture says that God made your brain. And there are Scriptures that say God can bring confusion. Could you not be thankful to God for allowing you to think clearly? Can you not pray to God to help you to think clearly? Third, Isaiah says that God gives the farmer wisdom to know which kind of soil to plant various crops in. Even though he doesn't uh, uh, know the source of God's wisdom, God still gave it. In fact, John 1 says that Christ enlightens every man who comes into the world. The very fact that you can think logically comes from God. Can you not thank him for that? 
Fourth, Scripture says that in Him we live and move and have our being. Even our daily breath comes from Him. You couldn't study if God didn't give you the ability. There is no basis for pride. Fifth, God prospers or frustrates our labors. He could make you so sick on the day of the exam that you couldn't think straight. Sixth, God makes the blind, and if He wanted, He could make you blind right now. Seventh, Philippians 2, 12 through 13 does not pit God's sovereignty over every detail against your hard work. Instead, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That verse says that you wouldn't even have the desire to do the right thing let alone be able to do the right thing without God. And then I told him, there are many reasons to labor hard and to have the humility to give the credit to God. In the midst of a pitched battle, Oliver Cromwell told his soldiers, trust God and keep your powder dry. Okay? And those two always go together. The humility of faith always results in diligent obedience. Now, the seventh adjective is principled. Look at uh, verse 21. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. They carried them away as a vivid declaration that their gods were powerless before Jehovah. They carried them away so that the Philistines would no longer trust them. And that would be debilitating. I mean, it would, it would unsettle these Philistines that their gods have not given them the victory. But First Chronicles adds a point of information when it says, And when they left their gods there, David gave a commandment, and they were burned with fire. He didn't try to sell them. Okay, that would perpetuate the idolatry. Nor did he save them as mementos or as souvenirs of this war. I mean, he could have put them into a showcase and told his kids, hey kids, see all of these idols up there? These are all just mementos and souvenirs of the fact that we won many battles and God won many battles against the Philistines. No, he didn't do that. He burned them with fire. And there are some things that are so dangerous that they must be destroyed. In Acts 19, verse 19, the apostles burned witchcraft books worth 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. You know how much silver coin is worth right now? That's a lot of money. How come they didn't sell those books of witchcraft on eBay and get a boatload of money for the church? You know, why, why didn't they save these as research tools for studying witchcraft? No, they, they understood that uh, such books are dangerous to sell and they are dangerous to keep. And it's one of the reasons why Joshua burned the library cities of Canaan. He didn't want the influence of those libraries to be anywhere found in Israel. There are a lot of Christians who have been unsuccessful in their spiritual warfare because they have tangible items in their homes that give legal ground for demons to harass them. Those things might be occult games, occult books, occult paraphernalia. I mean, here I am as a pastor, and we had incredible demonic activity one time in our home because a Korean brought an idol that they prayed to into, into our home. And my encouragement to you is to do like David did 
And don't give Satan one inch. Get rid of Ouija boards. They are not neutral. They are extremely dangerous. They give Satan legal ground to harass your family. Get rid of Dungeons and Dragons. Get rid of New Age crystals and pyramids. Get rid of occult medicine. Christians should not be mixing Christianity together with an occult pagan uh, culture. We must be principled. We must have antithesis. Okay, the next adjective is persistent. David had to be persistent in his warfare because the enemy just wouldn't go away. Verse 22. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Raphaim. Now, we understand the importance of eternal vigilance on our borders, but you know, the enemy within can be dangerous as well. David realized this with King Saul. Saul was the real enemy of the nation toward the end of his reign. And over and over, we find that nations fall from within when its citizens are not vigilant and persistent. The famous uh, Irish jurist from the late uh, 1700s, John Philpot uh, Curran, had seen numerous attempts by wealthy people to unjustly destroy people that they didn't like through the British courts, and he tirelessly championed liberty. He said, it is the common faith of the indolent, and by indolent he means either lazy or inactive, it is the common faith, fate of the indolent to see their rights become a prey to the active. The condition upon which God hath given liberty to man is eternal vigilance. Which condition, if he break, servitude is at once the consequence of his crime and the punishment of his guilt. That's an incredible statement. Let me, let me read it for you again. It is the common fate of the indolent to see their rights become a prey to the active. The condition upon which God hath given liberty to man is eternal vigilance, which condition, if he break, servitude is at once the consequence of his crime and the punishment of his guilt. He would say Americans have what they deserve today in the political arena because they've been indolent. They've not been persistent in opposing tyranny. We see that in connection with the attempts to put a central bank into America. Alexander Hamilton lost in his bid to achieve that at the Constitutional Convention, but he kept trying, and there were other Philistines who kept trying and trying until finally they not only got a central bank, but something far worse, the private Federal Reserve system that was put into place. One of the great opponents of the central bank was President Andrew Jackson. In fact, I think his best legacy was that he killed the central bank. And that's why I think it's such an insult to the name and the legacy of uh, Andrew Jackson that the Federal Reserve, they, maybe they did it to punish him, I don't know, but they put his picture on $20 bills. Andrew Jackson would roll over in his grave metaphorically, you know, if he knew that, uh, that they, they had done that. But anyway, in his farewell address in 1837, he said, but you must remember, my fellow citizens, that eternal vigilance by the people is the price of liberty, and that you must pay the price if you wish to secure the blessing. It behooves you, therefore, to be watchful in your states as well as in the federal government. And all I can say is amen and amen. 
I mean, Satan will guarantee that humans will be persistent in casting off the bonds of Christ, and we must be just as persistent in promoting the reign of Christ and His law in our nation. The ninth adjective is dependent. We must not rush into battle with self-confidence or with confidence in past victories or confidence in anything but God. I mean, it would have been very easy for David to think, hey, since God guided me last time to take on the Philistines in a frontal attack, I'll just do that again. But uh, he was not so foolish. In verse 23, it says, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. This was to be an action from the rear of the enemy. Now, in terms of military practice, or even football practice for that matter, um, you could apply it to, toward strategies of mixing it up and keeping the enemy off balance. But I just want to apply it to the simple concept of dependence. This verse reinforces what we said before about guidance. We need to seek the Lord daily. Don't rest on past successes in the, in, in the present. Depend upon the Lord. And you know, even in terms of our salvation, this is true. You shouldn't be saying... Uh, I believe I'm saved because I trusted in Jesus Christ 20 years ago. What does faith do? It's okay to say, yeah, I'm saved. I trusted Jesus 20 years ago, and I continue to trust Him alone for my salvation now and for all of eternity. Okay, Faith is an ongoing dependence upon the Lord. It's, uh, it's always in the present tense. It is not hit and miss. So don't just glory in God's work in your life from the past. Moment by moment, depend upon Him entirely, even for the smallest things of life. I mean, that's why we pray and say, thank you, Lord, for these cornflakes I'm about to eat, and please bless them to our body's use. By the way, uh, probably, probably a presumptuous prayer if you eat Twinkies three times a day, you know, if that's your only your only goal, because I think the Bible would have something to say about nutrition as well. But we depend on Him in everything. Okay, the tenth adjective is attuned. David did not just focus on flesh and blood battles. His vision took in the fact that the ultimate victories are won in the realm of the unseen. Unseen demons and unseen elect angels who were battling all around him. Verse 24. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly, for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. God was indicating that even military campaigns must seek the favor of God because our battle is not just against flesh and blood, it's also against Uh, the demons who spur on the enemy. And in this case, David's prayers were linked with angelic warfare. Now, David couldn't see them, but God enabled him to hear those uh, marching uh, soldiers. And I think God enabled him to hear those, those, those angelic hosts so that he would never forget about the fact that even in military battles, there are always unseen angels that are there. By the way, this is... um, This helps to explain why historically there has been so much demonic activity during uh, warfare. Both elect and non-elect angels are interested in such things. And sometimes soldiers, you know, after they've been 
tried for war crimes, they're mystified. They don't know why they were so involved in brutality and torture and rape and pillaging and in other uh, evil things that they were engaged in. And it's not just Hitler's Germany that had such rampant demonic activity. Virtually every European war that I have studied, you can see the demonic that's in some way uh, connected there. And interestingly, uh, when the armies would approach to some of these cities, there's reports of increased demonic activity around those cities. It's just a fascinating a phenomenon uh, historically. So there's a very tight connection between warfare and spiritual battles, and it's one of the reasons why I believe we must pray diligently for all of our military people when they are deployed in battle. It's not just bullets that are dangerous. No, there is, there is spiritual forces that are dangerous, and we must be praying for them. But uh, praise God, uh, He encamps round about those who fear Him, he sends his angels to guard their steps. And if you want a fabulous story, uh, read Sergeant York's autobiography. He was attuned, okay, to the spiritual dimension of battles. And so when you face difficulties and battles in your home, at work, in the church, or elsewhere that just don't make any sense, they seem irrational, you might want to think, well, maybe there's the demonic at work here. And I would encourage you to pray that God would send His warrior angels to deal with the demonic, to break off their grip. If you've not learned how to engage in spiritual warfare, you must. If you want success in life, you must be attuned to the spiritual. The 11th adjective is obedient, verse 25. And David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. It says, and David did so as the Lord commanded him. Now, unlike normal guidance that we receive, uh, David's guidance was inspired. And so it took on an authority that was similar to, 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 to scriptures. It required obedience. There is no guidance outside the Bible. There is no guidance that is inspired and infallible today. And so no guidance that we receive can have that kind of authority. And I'll, there's tons of scriptures on this, but 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that the Bible gives us every good work that we need to accomplish. If you say there's even one good work you can't find in the Bible that you're binding your conscience with, uh, that's unbiblical. There, once the scriptures have been settled, the canon is closed, there are no good works uh, beyond the scripture. But when it comes to Scripture, we must be completely sold out to obeying God's Word in the Bible. And if we do that, if we are sold out saying, Lord, you just tell me in your Scriptures what you want me to do, uh, Deuteronomy promises blessing. Okay, one more adjective. Advancing. The last part of verse 25 says, And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. Geba was five miles northeast of uh, Jerusalem, and David pushed the Philistines westward up over the central mountains and then down back into the place where they were before Saul's reign, actually a little bit uh, further than that. Um, I'm not sure how far it is when you count going up the mountain and down the mountain, but when you stretch it out on a map, 
as the crow flies, it was about 20 mile drive that he had. He was pushing the Philistines completely out of the territory that they had had for the last several years, quite a few years, out of the territory that God had given to him. And this is a great lesson for us as well. We should never be satisfied with partial victories in our spiritual life. We should desire the whole inheritance that God has given to us. We must be aggressive in fighting against sin. We must be aggressive in our drive to claim back America. We must be aggressively pressing for the crown rights of King Jesus over every square inch of planet Earth, certainly beyond what we've experienced, beyond what we've experienced so far. So don't be satisfied with anything less than God's call. Keep pressing against the enemy. And so while this passage obviously has implications for warfare, I think these are 12 adjectives that should describe our entire life. May we be warriors like David. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and the reminders in it that uh, our character, our walk with you, our reach into your heart, our uh, guidance, so many of these uh, Features are features that will make or break us as we seek to uh, take dominion in the world. And I pray that you would help us to anchor ourselves in the truths that we have discovered this morning. Do bless this, your people. In Jesus' name, amen.